In part six of this Discovering Bitcoin series, we will build on the idea of using digital puzzles as a way to reproduce scarcity and on the importance of a supply control mechanism to grant some hardness to digital money, to explore concepts of proving ownership through signatures and scripts and the technique known as coin join. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I'm Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. Yo, everybody, welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. I hope you guys are stacking sats responsibly with a uh, dollar cost averaging account just buying regularly every week automatically so that you don't have to worry about it. Um, uh, per usual, I got my you've been stacking with Swan and it's awesome. I've got a little bit of I've got a stack now. I've got a I've accumulated quite a bit through Swan Bitcoin uh, over this span and it's just awesome to have it happen and I don't have to do anything. And it immediately goes to my multi-sig wallet. So there is literally no better way to do it. And they have the lowest fees to do so. So, you know, added bonus. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash guy to start your savings plan. Uh, today, we are going back into the Discovering Bitcoin series from Cavemen to the Lightning Network by Giacomo Zucco. Um, and uh, I've been absolutely loving this series. I hope you guys have been too. Uh, this is part six, so we're getting really close. This is second to last. It's got seven parts, and this one is titled Digital Contracts. This is the sixth installment of Bitcoiner Giacomo Zucco's series, Discovering a Bitcoin, a brief overview from cavemen to the Lightning Network. In part six of this Discovering Bitcoin series, we will build on the idea of using digital puzzles as a way to reproduce scarcity and on the importance of a supply control mechanism to grant some hardness to digital money, to explore concepts of proving ownership through signatures and scripts and the technique known as coin join. Proving ownership, signatures. Our plan B for money brings us, for the second time, to focus on the topic of people and the question of who. You establish the conditions for the issuance of new SATs, but what about their transfer? Who is authorized to change the data in the shared balance sheet, transferring ownership? If there was a central authority in charge of reassigning SATs, following instructions by current owners, may be logged into the system with the classical username and password approach, like in your previous eGold experiment. There would be a Mallory vulnerable single point of failure again. Why then even bother moving from physical gold to proof-of-work-based digital scarcity? If, on the other hand, each user had an equal right to assign ownership, then your system could not work at all. Everyone would be encouraged to continuously assign other people's sats to themselves. You need some kind of consistent authority-defining protocol, which everybody could independently check. The solution is a cryptographic technique called a digital signature. 
It works like this. First, Alice chooses a random number called a private key, which she will then keep absolutely secret. Then, she passes this number through a special mathematical function, easy to apply in one direction, but practically impossible to reverse. The result is another number called a public key, which Alice doesn't keep secret at all. Instead, she makes sure that Bob gets to know it. Finally, she passes the private key and the message through a second function, again difficult to reverse, which results in a very big number called a signature. A third and last mathematical function can be applied by Bob to the message, the signature, and Alice's public key, resulting in a positive or negative verification. If the result is positive, he can be sure that Alice authorized that message, authentication, that she will not be able to later deny that authorization, non-repudiation, and that the message was not altered in transit, integrity. In a way, it's similar to handwritten signatures, thus the name, which are easy for everybody to check against some public sample, but difficult to reproduce without being the owner of the correct hand, or to wax seals, easy for everybody to check against a public seal registry, but difficult to reproduce without the correct wax stencil. So you change your protocol in order to make fractions of proofs of work independently reusable via digital signatures. The first model you implement is trivial. Each user independently generates a private key and creates a public, quote, account, labeled with the corresponding public key. When users want to transfer ownership, they create a message including their account, the receiving account, and the amount of sats they want to transfer. Then they digitally sign and broadcast the message, which everybody can verify. Interestingly enough, a similar scheme can be used by many renowned, yet possibly pseudonymous, developers to sign different versions of your software so that they can freely change, improve, fix, update, audit, and review it. And any final user of your system can independently verify said signatures before running their preferred version leveraging a network of minimized and fragmented trust without the need for a single authority to centrally distribute the software. This process enables a true decentralization of code. Script and Smart Contracts You don't want to limit the conditions that every peer has to check before accepting any change in the shared balance sheet to mere digital signature validity, though. You decide that each message could also include a script, a list of instructions describing additional conditions that the receiving account or accounts will have to satisfy in order to spend again. For example, the sender could require a combination of several secret keys in conjunction or disjunction, or a specific waiting time before spending. Starting from these very simple and easy-to-audit primitives, complex smart contracts can be built making money effectively programmable, even in the absence of central parties. Darkness and Scaleness Problems Unlike an encrypted messaging system where if Alice sends Bob some messages, only Bob can read them, your scheme isn't really optimized for darkness. If Alice sends Bob sats, her message will have to be revealed beyond Bob at the very least, to those who will receive those same sats later on. 
money circulates. Payees cannot trust any money transfer, even if properly signed, if they cannot verify that the transferred SATs have actually been transferred themselves to that specific payer, and so on, upstream, back to the very first proof-of-work-based issuance. With enough circulation of SATs, active peers would get to know a huge number of past transactions, and forensic analysis techniques could be employed to statistically correlate amounts, timings, metadata, and accounts, thereby de-anonymizing many users and stripping them of their deniability. This is problematic. As discussed in Part 2, darkness is a fundamental quality for money, both for economical and sociological reasons. Smart contracts make this problem even worse since particular spending conditions may be used to identify particular software implementations or specific organization policies. This lack of darkness is more serious than the one that affected your previous e-gold experiment. It's true that, back then, you stored most transactions' metadata on your central servers, but at least it was only you, as opposed to quite literally anybody, including many of Mallory's agents, who had access. Furthermore, you could implement some particularly advanced cryptographic strategy to make yourself at least partially blind to what was actually going on between your users. There's also a minor scaleness problem connected with this design. Digital signatures are quite big, and the chain of transfers that a payee needs to receive in order to validate everything would include many signatures, making validation potentially more expensive. Furthermore, account changes are quite difficult to validate in parallel. A new paradigm. CoinJoin. To mitigate such problems, you decide to change the fundamental entities of your model from bank-like accounts to unspent transaction outputs, or UTXOs. Instead of instructions to move SATs from one account to another, each message now includes a list of old UTXOs coming from past transactions and consumed as ingredients, and a list of new UTXOs generated as products and ready for future transactions. Instead of publishing a single static public key to be used as general account reference, like a bank IBAN or an email address, Bob must provide new single-use public keys for each payment he wants to receive. When Alice pays him, she signs a message that unlocks some sats from a previously created UTXO and then locks them again into some new UTXO. Just like with physical cash, spendable bills don't always match payment requests. Change is often required. If, for example, Alice wants to pay 1,000 sats to Bob, but she only controls several UTXOs locking 700 sats each, she will sign a transaction consuming two of those 700 SAT UTXOs, unlocking a total amount of 1,400 SATs, and generating two new UTXOs, one associated with Bob's keys locking the payment, 1,000 SATs, and the other associated with Alice's keys, her own, locking the change, 400 SATs. Provided that people don't reuse keys for different payments, this design increases darkness in and of itself, but even more so when your users start to realize that UTXOs consumed and generated by a single transaction don't have to come from just two entities. Alice can create a message spending old UTXOs that she controls 
and generating new UTXOs associated with Bob, then she can pass said message to Carol, who can simply add her old UTXOs that she wants to consume and the new UTXOs associated with Daniel that she wants to create. Finally, Alice and Carol both sign and broadcast the composite message, paying both Bob and Daniel. This special use of the UTXO model is called CoinJoin. Trigger warning, within the actual Bitcoin history, this use wasn't Satoshi's design rationale for the UTXO model itself, but was discovered as a potential twist on said design by other developers many years after the launch. It breaks the statistical linkability between outputs while preserving what is called atomicity. Transactions are either entirely valid or invalid. Thus, Alice and Carol don't have to trust each other. If one of them tries to alter a partially signed message before adding their own signature, the existent signature becomes invalid. There is a possible change to your system that may actually improve the situation even more. A different digital signature scheme, alternative to the one you're using now, which is linear in the signatures. That means, in taking two private keys, which are nothing but two numbers, signing the same message with each and adding together the resulting signatures, which also are nothing but two very big numbers, the result happens to be the correct signature corresponding to the sum of the two public keys associated with the two initial private keys. This sounds convoluted, but the implication is simple. Alice and Carol, when coin joining, could add up their individual signatures and broadcast just the sum, which everybody could verify against the sum of their public keys. Since, as we said, signatures are the heaviest part of transactions, the possibility of broadcasting just one instead of many would save up a lot of resources. External observers would end up suspecting every transaction of being a coin join, since many users could be after efficiency gains. This assumption would break most of the forensic heuristics. Even without this further improvement, the UTXO model already somehow increases scaleness. Unlike state changes in the account model, it allows validation to be efficiently batched and processed in parallel. So far, you've learned that you can decentralize ownership using digital signatures for transfer, that you can turn transactions into programmable contracts with a script system, and that a more complex paradigm called CoinJoin can further increase darkness and scaleness. But now that your users can issue SATs and transfer them in a completely decentralized way, how can they all be sure that a single chronology is followed, preventing double-spending attacks or attempts to tinker with the inflation schedule? We will answer that in our final installment, Discovering Bitcoin Part 7, The Missing Pieces. All right, and that knocks out Part 6 of Giacomo Zucco's Discovering Bitcoin series, and this one was dense. If it was a little bit heavy for some of you guys, don't worry. I'm going to try to go back over uh, the main arguments of this piece because really he's getting into kind of specifics of how the protocol works. Um, so uh, uh, I'm going to try to re-explain this and make it uh, a little bit easier to digest. And we will do so right after we hit our sponsor. 
All right. So this section or this uh, part, part six here of Discovering Bitcoin series is a little bit dense. And I imagine particularly in audio, it might be kind of hard to follow. So I'm going to break down a lot of these concepts and kind of go piece by piece and just kind of give my explanation for them. Just hearing them from two different perspectives, I think, and uh, with analogies really makes it a lot easier to wrap your head around this stuff. So uh, let's start with signatures. So the general idea is that if we're moving this money, um, that we've, we've created a digital money that can only be created, that can only be issued um, after solving some provably scarce puzzle. Um, and in the last section, we talked about how that puzzle gets harder or easier based on how many people are solving it, specifically so that the uh, basically the, the new Bitcoins that are created are always created at the exact same rate and by a public and very known schedule. So we achieved digital hardness by requiring the solution to an extremely difficult puzzle a proof of work. So after that, we need to exchange these things, but actually have owners. We need a way to, we can't just have somebody on a central computer somewhere uh, decide who owns what. Um, and we can't just store all of, you know, a bunch of username and passwords that way, because then it doesn't really matter that we've got digital hardness. If the ownership is irrelevant, if the ownership is completely centralized, then so is everything. So what system do we use to make it so that someone can own the Bitcoin, that only, only a single person can move those coins, um, and that everyone can actually check that that is the case, and that the right person was the one to move the coins, and so that everyone can make an account so that so that any anyone can receive uh, bitcoins can can have it locked to their ownership this is where private and public keys come in and they are the basis of signatures um and this seems really complicated but i'm going to try to simplify it the analogy i like to use isn't perfect but it's a really easy way to visualize it and it's good enough to get it conceptually um, so know that this isn't perfectly accurate but the private key is the actual key like it's like the key to your house if somebody else has the private key and it's just information like like with the you obviously you have a physical key but if somebody knows where all the little peaks and troughs and flat spots of the key are well then they can get into your house they you don't have to have the physical key they just need the information that made the key and the key itself is just a random number like the benefit of the key the reason it only works in your door is that it's just a really random sequence of peaks and troughs and Someone else trying to guess that would take an enormous amount of time. This is literally true of the digital version as well, except that the number is a freaking massive amount bigger than the key in your door. Because a computer, like, yes, it's really hard and slow for someone to make, you know, a million keys to try to get into your house. 
but uh, it takes no time at all for someone to make a million keys digitally and try to unlock a piece of information. Therefore, the private key in the information space uh, has to be huge. It's 2 to the 256th power. Um, and that is the, and that's, when, when I say power, that means that it's multiplied by itself 256 times, and it is roughly equivalent, um, well, is, it is at least on the order of um, the number of estimated atoms in the entire universe. So this isn't a small number. Um, there was somebody did a thought experiment of uh, how much energy, just like let's say we could make a computer that was so amazingly efficient, um, so efficient that literally it, was, it took the least amount of energy possible to, um, to switch a zero from a one that would be orders of magnitude more efficient than the processing and stuff that we have today. And then we uh, built a computer that took up the, it was nothing but a processor. We built a straight processing machine that was the size of the sun. Uh, so it's, you know, what is it, 3,000, 5,000 times the size of the earth. And this thing could process ones and zeros, could count, essentially, as efficiently as, thermo, as the laws of thermodynamics allow it to that it would literally take the rest of the age of the universe and you would not be able to you would not be able to count to that number and but it's also just 256 digits so even though the amount of variation in that pool of information uh, is huge it's also pretty small when you look at it on your computer and if you pick a number randomly in that space it's like having a key to your house that's like five feet long that just has peaks and troughs and flat and peaks and like just, I mean, just the longest key that you could possibly imagine to go into your door and uh, think of the amount of work someone would have to do to try that, uh, to try to unlock it. And more importantly, there is no other way. There's no window. There's no other way into the door. It's just the key and nothing else because the entire house is hidden with the key. The house doesn't exist unless you have the key. That's the uh, nature of the information in the digital space. If it's locked with that private key, well, then we have no idea what the information is until we have the key to unlock it. This is the nature of a digital private key. And it's important that you just generate one out of thin air like picking an atom in, out of anywhere in the universe because nobody could ever guess the likelihood of guessing it. Uh, you're going to win the lottery uh, consecutively millions of times, <laughs> literally like once a second every day for the rest of your life before you would be able to guess this number. So now the public key. What does that mean? The public key is like your lock. And now this is, this is where it gets a little funky um, because this isn't entirely right, but this is how it's used, uh, essentially. Um, the, so the public key is the lock. Like you can give away the public key and uh, like you can give a lock to somebody and let's say you wanted to, uh, 
uh, you wanted to take ownership of a storage container. And there was no way to get into it unless you could get through the door. And you had an unbreakable lock. Uh, well, you could just give the lock to somebody and just be like, well, I don't even know where the container is, but, uh, you know, just put this lock on the door and I'll know that I'm the only one that can get to it. Or maybe a safety deposit box or whatever it is that you want. But you can give them the lock and they can, they can basically prevent anyone else from getting into this thing except you because it only unlocks with your key. But the lock doesn't tell them anything about the key. Uh, and in the, that's, that's, the, that's what he says in the article. He says you do a math thing. Uh, you do a math uh, function on the private key, on your, you know, the key to your house, and then it produces the public key, but it can't be reversed. There's no amount of looking at the lock. There's no amount of looking at the public key that you can do to reverse it and be like, oh, this is what the key looks like. So because of that, public keys are incredibly useful. You can give them out to anybody. You can post them publicly, and they can send you a message. They can send you an image. Uh, they can send you a location to some amount of money somewhere that exists that's hidden and lock it with this public key. They can mix it with that information, the lock that you provided out to the public. And then after doing so, you are the only one that can make sense of that information. And everybody else who tries has to guess every atom in the universe to try to make sense of it. That is how you create information that only a single person can access. Now, if you have a digital asset, if you have a digital money that is purely based on the validation of correct information, you can make that information dependent on those keys that without that secret information, it simply isn't valid. And this is where we get a signature. Just like the public key, um, the lock that's created from your key, uh, doesn't tell you anything about the key, the signature doesn't either. But you, you sign a message with the private key. So you sign the message with a really, really long house key. <laughs> and the result is something that you can't, again, you can't look at it and be like, oh, this is what the secret key looks like. But you can hold that up next to the lock and see that they match. So you can know with mathematical certainty at the, the probability of someone else having guessed a single atom out of the entire universe, essentially making a bet that somebody is not winning the lottery every second of every day for the rest of their lives, which is not really a hard bet to make, um, that whoever signed this message was explicitly in control of that really, really long key because they mixed them together and the lock, the public lock that we have available to us, matches that information. And that's how you can have people who have no idea what the key is validate that only the person with the key can move something or can, uh, can quote-unquote sign it and therefore exchange the ownership of, uh, in this case, the bitcoins, the money. Okay. So, private key is the key itself. 
and it's incredibly long and incredibly complicated, and you have to, you have to keep it secret. The public key is the lock, and you can give it to other people, and they can lock stuff with it. They can lock Bitcoin or information or images or whatever it is, and then you are the only one who can see that information. And a signature is to mix your private key with uh, some information, a message, an image, a, um, a contract in this case. And anyone who knows the message that you signed and has your public key can know with absolute certainty that you have the private key. You have the secret one without them being able to tell anything whatever about what the key looks like. That is the magic of cryptographic math. So now we move to scripts and smart contracts. This is basically the ability to write in arbitrary restrictions along with that signature. So the, the secret to moving a Bitcoin is a valid signature. And then there's just a specific type of message that needs to be written a certain way that says, these Bitcoins that are previously behind my keys will now move behind this lock. And so, like, just like I can give away my public key and everybody can share it, well, I can send you, my public key being the lock here, obviously, um, I, can I can get your lock. We can all just share locks. I can get your lock and I can say, I can sign with my private key a message that says, um, uh, I have the private key to this Bitcoin, to this one Bitcoin, and... Uh, I no longer want it. I am now going to send it in exchange for something else, whatever, it doesn't matter, um, to you. And it is now uh, the only valid signature um, that can sign this uh, Bitcoin is the one with this public key. And I, I attach the one that you gave me. So now it's yours. Because just like somebody else locking a container somewhere with my lock, and therefore my key is the only one that can open it, I just sent those Bitcoins to, or that one Bitcoin to your lock, and now you are the only one that can open it. And the only reason everybody accepted it is because I had a signature from my old key, um, and they compared it with my lock and proved that that is, in case, that is the case, that I, the rightful owner of those Bitcoins, signed this message that now handed it over to you. Whew. Okay, so hopefully, hopefully that was followed. But with scripts and smart contracts, this is the ability to basically sign it with stipulations. Just like any sort of contract, you can be like, oh, you own this house unless you forget to make payments. Um, or uh, you can have this car for a week as long as you don't ding it up. You know, as long as you don't get into an accident, then I'm going to take it back. I'm going to charge you uh, like you have stipulations to a contract. But you want the stipulations to be inherent to the Bitcoin itself because Bitcoin can't know anything outside of the system. It's only within the math and within the actual network that it can know. It has no idea where it is or who is using what. All it can do is validate signatures and validate um the uh the scripts or the restrictions that went into owning it essentially the lock um and that's where we put 
our scripts and our smart contracts is on the lock. So the lock has to meet more than just the criteria of you unlocking it with your key. It's like you have to unlock it with your key and also it has to be five days from now. Um, and that's a uh, check time lock verify. It's literally a script that says only after this span of time does this key actually work. Until that time, the signature will not unlock those coins. And it's really interesting the kinds of things that you can create with literally just a handful of building blocks. It's like having Legos of a couple of different sizes, but you can stack them on top of each other. You can do a lot with them. The other example he gave is that um, you have to unlock multiple keys. Uh, so rather than just having one key, I could send you Bitcoin that both of us own. I could say uh, only with a signature with uh, using this lock, uh, using your lock and my lock, that we both have to unlock it with our keys individually, only then can we actually unlock it. And that literally means that, you know, like a, you know, not being able to open up the nuclear vault unless two people turn keys at the same time, that's the equivalent on the Bitcoin network. Nobody can access these Bitcoins unless both of these people sign at the exact same time. And there are a lot of other scripts and contracts and stuff that we can get into, but that's, you know, for other episodes. Um, we've covered a lot of that stuff in the past, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll be getting into it again with uh, Part 7 when he's talking about the Lightning Network um, and some of the other things, that, some of the more advanced things that you can do with this. Um, but uh, he actually talks about something called Schnorr signatures in this without explicitly saying Schnorr signatures. We talked about how um, that you could have multiple keys. Well, what if it's, it's as we got down to the coin join section is that what if you could just add the signatures together? Um, I think Alice and Carol were his example, but let's again, let's say me and you um, that rather than both of us putting our lock on the transactions individually um, and then signing to have them both released separately, I need, a, I need a big signature for my key and you need a, I mean, excuse me, I need a big signature for my lock uh, to unlock and you need a big signature for your lock to unlock. What if we could both add the locks together and take them in aggregate? So it's one, it looks like one lock and then we could do the same thing with our signatures is we add both of our signatures together and that new signature that's just one block of information unlocks that one key, uh, unlocks the one lock. Well, we just saved a whole lot of data, particularly if, uh, you know, imagine how much easier it is to... Um, uh, to have one lock on a container or a safety deposit box or something, uh, but actually have it be the aggregate of a hundred different people. Let's say it's everybody in a company together that can unlock this safety deposit box. Well, you know, it would be a real huge burden and obnoxious as all get out if we had to lock a hundred separate locks on this safety deposit box. But what if we could add all of our keys together and add all the locks together and get one signature and one lock? Um, and we could do so without exposing any of our keys whatsoever. 
Um, we're not having to share keys with each other. We're just sharing signatures. We're, we're sharing the results of unlocking our individual public keys. That's pretty powerful to, you know, be able to turn a hundred different signatures into one signature. And it also adds a lot to darkness, that original uh, concept that we talk about at the beginning of money, that it's independent of its owner, that the, the, the owner themselves are the only ones that can move it, but it is the information is not directly tied to them, that there is a degree of privacy and the other term is fungibility, that you can't specifically say, I won't accept these coins, but I'll accept these other coins. Um, and it's because these coins over here are bad coins that, you know, came from drugs or uh, used to, you know, terrorists use it, used it once 20 days ago or 100 days ago. And now those are bad Bitcoins and these are good Bitcoins. Uh, it's critical for the money to actually work as money that it be completely uniform, that every Bitcoin is equal to every Bitcoin and none of them are unique. Uh, and that's where uh, you get kind of a dual value of CoinJoin. Um, CoinJoin is where um, rather than me just signing a message that say it says these Bitcoins at this location uh, owned by me now are owned by you uh, and signing it, that instead... Uh, we also, Carol also have it, has a, um, a Bitcoin that she wants to send to Bob and uh, Dan has a Bitcoin that he wants to send to Sandy. And we just add all of this data together privately, like just separately. We put all this together and then we stack all of our private keys on top. Of, I mean, excuse me, we stack all of our signatures on top of each other um, again so that we have the one lock. And uh, all you see is three different Bitcoins coming in and three different Bitcoins going out. And there's nothing that says mine is explicitly to you. Carol's is explicitly to Bob's or Dan's is explicitly to Sandy's. Either one of them could have gone to either one. And one of them could have gone back to themselves. It didn't even have to be another person on the other side. It could have just been from my wallet to a different one on my wallet. Um, and that breaks that Forensic heuristic, the ability to look at the chain, to look at the Bitcoin system, because it has to be public to verify that they're real Bitcoins and that it's a real signature. Um, uh, because of that, you need that layer of privacy to obfuscate exactly what is going where. And that's something we hope to have in Bitcoin, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a very broad sense. Like it's something that you can get with a lot of different wallets. There's join market there's wasabi wallet there's samurai uh and the the dojo and all these things so there's a lot of different technologies that are making use of this um but it's not like completely ubiquitous but once we have that type of signature that giacomo was talking about in this thing where you can add the signatures together rather than you know make all the all 100 locks look like one lock uh rather than having separate locks for each thing uh, once that is um, uh, create or, or implemented into the Bitcoin system, well, then CoinJoin, rather than being something explicitly for, for privacy, also becomes a huge data savings. So it's a huge way to save on fees and the bloat that's happening on the Bitcoin chain. That's actually a great, great thing because it aligns. Usually privacy is an extra cost. So... Um, it's something that you 
you basically have to hope that everybody is willing to pay an extra cost or an extra inconvenience or whatever it is to get that privacy because you having privacy benefits me. Uh, my Bitcoins uh, basically get deniability or um, get the benefit of uh, that heuristic being broken that we don't really know that every single Bitcoin sent to this other location is exactly one string of, uh, you know, from Sandy to Bob or whatever it is. Uh, so the more people who are using privacy on the chain, the more I benefit from it. It's kind of this collective cost. And simultaneously, if I am the only one using these privacy measures and nobody joins me, well, then it doesn't mean anything. I'm not getting any privacy back. So that new signature scheme um, where you can combine locks is actually really, really important. And it's a great way to incentivize CoinJoin to make privacy by default. And where, you know, not only is, you know, uh, turning those 100 different locks into one lock a huge space savings, um, and therefore, you know, you, you pay for one lock as opposed to 100 locks, you know, a lock might be two bucks, right? Like, you gotta pay for 100 of them, that's $200. If you can all just make it one lock, well, then it's just two. Um, and funny enough, that actually is kind of how it works on chain. You pay for the amount of data. Um, and each new lock is a new piece of data. So to be able to turn a privacy mechanism into explicitly a cost-saving mechanism where somebody who might not even care about privacy gets it because they're trying to save, you know, 99% on their fees um, is a huge, huge benefit. Um, and, uh, and also, I think, honestly, critically important for the longevity of Bitcoin. Like, I think will probably still have enough privacy because of lightning and a lot of the other measures that are coming but that would really be kind of the cherry on top um to close out the whole of the privacy promises of a digital currency future so uh just so you know the analogies aren't perfect but conceptually um i think you get it, it makes it so much easier to understand what's going on. But I used lock and signature kind of interchangeably, um, which doesn't really work. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of nuances and technicals that I could get into, but it doesn't help you understand it. Um, it just makes it more confusing. Uh, if you wanted to be a developer, that wouldn't, that certainly wouldn't be enough. If you wanted to write your own script, this wouldn't, you know, fully make sense. But conceptually, what's happening, I think this is a pretty good way to picture it uh, unless you want to go digging for specifics. Um, and it will conceptually still hold up uh, later on down the road. So I think, I think that was it. Um, this commentary has gone on pretty, pretty long here, but this was a really dense section. Um, and... Uh, uh, great series, as always. Huge thank you to Jacques Mazuko for putting this together because um, it truly gets into the, uh, the nit and gritty of understanding all of these concepts and how would you do this in a digital way and how would you actually secure or achieve hardness in a digital asset and then uh, achieve or secure ownership of it to any random individual, anyone who... Uh, you know, uh, basically fulfilled all of the rules and all of the proper signatures 
to the ownership of that coin that they could then send it to somebody else. So let's, uh, let's close this one out here. Another thank you to Giacomo Zucco and of course to Bitcoin Magazine for uh, having this available. They've got a lot of other great like beginning Bitcoin sort of uh, articles. There's a whole like, what is money? What is Bitcoin? What's a UTXO? Oh man, that's something I didn't get to in this one. Quick version, just relying on Giacomo's analogy here, is that rather than having an account with all of your money in it, uh, you have uh, bills. So like somebody can send you a hundred dollar bill and a fifty dollar bill. Those are still separate. Uh, except kind of the fun thing on Bitcoin is that you can split those up too. If you've got only a fifty dollar bill, uh, you can send twenty five of it to somebody and then twenty five of it back to yourself. So it's just the accounting model that Bitcoin uses is different from the explicit account model. And because of that, you can have like a bunch of different bills and those bills aren't necessarily attached to you. Um, it does just in and of itself give a little extra privacy because whereas if you had an account that received 100 transactions, um, uh, it would be obvious that all of those 100 went to you. Whereas, you, whereas you, if you had 100 different bills, um, and they were all each recorded in their own transaction, and then you spent them one at a time, it may never, it may never cross at all that the, all those bills were in your possession. So hopefully some of that cleared up um, at least the overarching idea of how some of this stuff works. It gets really, really deep in the weeds, and I particularly find it absolutely fascinating. I've got a hundred other episodes uh, that we've dug into some of this, and I'm working on a beginner series right now that probably won't be dropping now until after BitBlock Boom, um, which is this weekend. Uh, if any last-minute decisions to come out and join us, don't forget offer code CC will get you 30% off. There are some tickets still left. Um, so if you want to come to the Bitcoin conference of 2020, BitBlock Boom, Dallas, uh, this weekend, the 28th, and uh, or I think it's the 29th maybe, Offer code CC will get you 30% off. All right, uh, I'm out. Thank you so much for listening. This is Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan. And until next time, take it easy, guys. This has been a 111 production, and you are listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.